Uh, we come today and uh, I wanted to conclude our discussion. We have now had two, three different lectures and have had some wonderful discussion uh, under this, this heading of the uh, regenerate church membership uh, that uh, baptism of course being that which is only to be administered to those who are of believing faith all of that whole discussion we've had some wonderful discussions of it <clears throat> been some tremendous points brought out and uh, we have not intentionally sought to linger there for any particular purpose but we have just tried to give it a considerable amount of attention because this is such a distinguishing mark for us as Baptists and it has brought to us such ire from other denominations of uh, believers and uh, it's just a huge huge subject and I don't want it to just lightly trip over it or treat it uh, too lightly even though this is purely a survey course and not a in-depth uh, you know uh, systematic theology but it is being uh, being even at that rate as a, as a survey course I do want did want to give that all the attention that uh, I feel that we need to accomplish our purpose with it. And, uh, of course, the summation of the whole thing, I, I think, is Brother John brought it out in the, after one of the lectures at, that uh, Baldwin, Baldwin, one of his principal points that he presses and I think it is it is is a death nail in the whole the coffin of uh, uh, pedo baptism, and that is that baptism is only and ever described, only and ever described in the New Testament as being a matter of obedience. You are commanded to be baptized, and that the infant uh, and the resulting adolescent, child, whatever, uh, adult that receives that, that infant baptism has not and absolutely has not <clears throat> obeyed that command. <clears throat> they have not. <clears throat> There's no indication in the New Testament that someone else may obey that for you by proxy. It is purely a direct command given to every sinner. And until you have obeyed it out of obedience, then it remains not obeyed. And that is a principal argument that Baldwin makes in his book and, and certainly significant. So I said that just by way, but then I, I will kind of wanting to sum up <clears throat> and bring to conclusion our discussion of infant baptism or if you prefer to designate it as a regenerate only church membership. And, uh, but I did want to read one final thing to wrap up our discussion of that specific point. 
I wanted to read Jeter, uh, Jeter's uh, work uh, on page 54, Jeter's work, The Baptist Principles Reset. Jeter said, infant baptism seems to be a harmless rite. Now, I hear this. I hear this a lot from those who practice it, who aren't willing to study, aren't willing to look into the theological, doctrinal, biblical, shall I say, implications of things. But they throw this out. Look, it's a harmless right. It appeals strongly, Jeter says, to parental affection, is invested with poetic charms, and refers for its support to a venerable antiquity and to the number, learning, and respectability of its advocates. Now, we can't deny any of those things. Uh, certainly, it has a, a, strong, a strong appeal for parental affection. When the parents bring the little child to the font and the priest takes the child and Sprinkles it. There's a great deal of emotion and affection in that whole scene as it plays out. It's certainly invested with poetic charms. <laughs> and it refers for its support to a venerable antiquity. And we cannot deny that either. That there have been venerable men, men whose writings we cherish and use who have held to this. Then he says, what harm, it is asked, can a rite so simple, so appropriate, and so beautiful do to a child or his parents? And I hear this argument. I've heard this argument. The influence of pedobaptism in this country has been greatly modified by the prevalence of Baptist views. In many places in some religious sects, sects it has fallen greatly in dissuasion. If the rite is not neglected, it is observed as an empty ceremony. It has no regenerating and no sin-cleansing efficacy. In four-fifths of the Christian world, however, Infant baptism is viewed in a very different light from that that he just described. It is held and practiced as a regenerating, sin-purifying ordinance. Now, I know this is a fact, and I've said it here before to you in these classes. I have talked personally with numbers of church members in Pedro Baptist churches. I can assure you this is what they believe. He says this doctrine is taught without equivocation and without reservation. Infants born in sin are supposed to be renewed in nature and delivered from guilt by the application of a few drops of water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by a duly qualified priest, or in cases of necessity, by parents, physicians, or nurses. 
the regenerated child is made a member, so they say, of the mystical body of Christ and an inheritor of the kingdom. Their confirmation later, by the way, in their minds, in their understanding, confirmation doesn't translate them into the kingdom of God. It is confirmation. It confirms that they are in the kingdom. It is their opportunity as a, as a separate individual to make a public confirmation that they are in the kingdom of God. He grows up in the church. His membership is perpetuated by the right of confirmation. His membership is perpetuated by the right of confirmation. Now then he says, to this system we have grave and weighty objections. It finds no countenance in the oracles of God. And there, I say to you, is the bottom line. There is the bottom line. And that's why we started this series of Baptist distinctives and we set the, the first one forward was the Sola Scriptura. That we absolutely will hold nothing that does not find its basis in clear command or clear practice of the Scriptures. Alright? So, Jeter simply says, it finds no confidence in the oracles of God. We read, indeed, in a book containing many excellent truths and precepts that by baptism infants are regenerated, made members of the mystical body of Christ, and inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. We read it, he says, in many great books by great men. And I would add, I would add to that, we read it in the Westminster Confession. But he says, but we find no such teaching in the scriptures. The tendency of this doctrine has been in all ages and in all countries to obliterate the distinction between the church and the world. Now, in the message this morning, my third and final point in the message was that this gospel of Christ demands a change from the sinner to be changed from his dead condition and progressively, by progressive sanctification, changed throughout his life to the very end. This practice obliterates that. Because it says, it, it says that they are made members in Christ's church, not only the body local, but the mystical body, the spiritual body, that they are made members in Christ's church from infancy. So there is never a time when their lives are made to begin to change from the sinner they were born to a saint that's being changed. There is no mark of that. Confirmation doesn't do that. And so because that there is no marker, there is the, the doctrine amalgamates unlike things. 
It makes believers of unbelievers. It professes to make believers of unbelievers. And therefore, when they're married into the church, what you have is an unregenerate church. And so the world and the church are not divided. And that, that, Jeter, that's the point Jeter is making. This has been the universal tendency of this doctrine. That it obliterates the distinction between the church and the world. The tendency of this doctrine has been, in all ages and in all countries, to obliterate the distinction between the church and the world. In almost every land where pedobaptism has enjoyed uncontrolled sway, the limits of the church and the world have been coextensive. All the infidelity, corruption, and blasphemy of the people have been within the church. Its discipline has been overthrown or exercised only in regard to those who have questioned its authority. The Romish and Grecian heresies, heresies, wherever they have been established, have confirmed these statements, and Protestant hierarchies, though restrained by the influence of dissent in their tendency, have quite clearly exemplified the same remarks. We can look at the Greek church, we can look at the Roman church, and we can see this in its extreme, and we can say, ah, oh, that's terrible. Well, we can look at it in our Presbyterian brethren. And although it has been in some measure restrained, is the word he used, the marks are still there. Finally, he says, the influence of the doctrine of baptismal regeneration is even worse on individuals than on communities. Persons who grow up under the persuasion that they are regenerated, children of God and inheritors of his kingdom, are laboring under a perilous delusion. They misconceive the plan of human redemption, they cherish a hope that neither scripture nor reason can sanction. They vainly imagine that they have some claim to divine mercy. Some advantages for securing salvation that others have not. Will not this persuasion inevitably beget a false peace? Inspire a deceptive hope? And tend to prevent repentance unto life. Parents too must have less solicitude for the salvation of their children as they have been placed within the limit of the covenant and made heirs of the heavenly kingdom. In other words, the parents of a child that has received this baptism and the doctrines that it teaches, they are going to be less diligent and concerned with the conversion of their children because they believe they've already inherited the grace necessary to their salvation. So I just I just wanted to drive in one more nail <laughs> uh, in the conclusion of this matter 
before we moved on past it. Is there anybody else would like to add any thoughts or comments to that subject before we move on to the next? It, uh, the effect on the children is um, particularly damning and and uh, sad because the child grows up believing themselves to be safe and they're not. And you will meet some Peter Baptists who do put an emphasis on and even say, will say that their children need to be converted. But those few who say those things are themselves in a real quantity. Because if they believe that, then they have just denied the other. You can't hold the two together. Either they did receive the grace of regeneration or they did not. You can't have it both ways. But it's, it's, it's a damning thing for the children. Then it's a damning thing for the church as a body because it makes, it brings the world into the church. They're literally born into the church. The world is born into the church by means of infant baptism. All right? Okay. Then uh, we will next, we won't get far today, but we will next proceed to the study of the proper mode of baptism. What we have been treating thus far are who is the question, who are the pro proper subjects for baptism? And that, of course, is one who has received the gospel message, regeneration, profession. They have been granted repentance and faith and have made profession of that, of those facts. Those are the legitimate subject for baptism. But then we will take up also the proper mode for baptism because while it is not the most profound difference we have among ourselves as uh, evangelicals, it is not the most profound. The most profound has to do with the subject of baptism. But it is nonetheless an issue because the scriptures do speak. And if they speak, we must know what they say. So there are those who believe that baptism is accomplished totally and completely by simply sprinkling just a few drops. They say that the symbolism is there and that's all that's needed. Uh, then of course there are those who believe in baptism by pouring. Literally pour water over the person. And then those of us who hold that it is only and ever by immersion. They must be totally immersed into water. So there are these differing modes 
of baptism and uh, these of course all are affected by our doctrine again our insistence on the sola scriptura I did quote I think last class or class before I, I quoted from Francis Whalen and I did offer my uh, caveat that I'm not a great promoter Francis Whalen certainly not <clears throat> but he has had some things some comments in these subjects which were of value he says uh, Francis Whalen says the fundament, fundamental principle on which our difference from other evangelical denominations depends is this we profess to take for our guide in all matters of religious belief and practice, the New Testament, the whole New Testament, and nothing but the New Testament. Whatever we find there, we esteem binding on the conscience. What is not there commanded is not binding. No matter by what reverence for antiquity or reverence for tradition or what counsels or what consent of any branch of the church or of the whole church, no matter what, at any particular period, an opinion or practice may be sustained if it uh, may be sustained if it be not sustained by the command or example of Christ or of the apostles, we value it only as an opinion or a precept of men, and we treat it accordingly. He's Whalen is saying exactly what was said by Jeter and others in our early lectures. If we do not find it in the scriptures, we do not accept it, period. And this applies as much to the matter of subject of baptism as it also does to the mode of baptism. We disavow the authority of man to add to or take from the teachings of inspiration as they are found in the New Testament. Hence, to a Baptist, all appeals to the church fathers or to antiquity or to the general practice of the early centuries or to later times are all considered irrelevant and frivolous. He asked for divine authority as his guide, that is the Baptist, in all matters of religion. And if this be not produced, his answer is, in vain do ye worship me, teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. It is from adherence to this principle that our divergence from other denominations of Christian, Christians originates. We do not make this assertion in any invidious, in any invidious sense. Other Christians may believe as firmly as we that they also adhere to this principle. And in fact, did they not claim such to be their belief, they would cease to be Protestants. They may believe, says Whalen, just as strongly as we believe. But then he says this, we fully concede 
these to be their sentiments, and therefore we love and honor them. That is, as fellow Christians, those who differ with us as to the mode of baptism, we will honor them as brothers and disagree with them. We cannot, however, divest ourselves of the opinion that we have escaped some of the errors which crept into the church at the time of the Reformation. And in this respect, how much soever we may fail in other respects, we are nearer to the New Testament than many of our Christian brethren, whom we love as heirs with us to the glory that's in Christ. As I have before remarked, says Wayland, we agree in holding the general doctrines of the plan of salvation with other evangelical denominations in this country and throughout the world. The Westminster Confession of Faith probably expresses our sentiments on these subjects as nearly as almost any other document that is on the sentiments of salvation. With the 39 articles, the Episcopal Church, of the Episcopal Church, we should find but little at which we can take exception. With the Orthodox friends, we are, on most points, closely in harmony. From the Methodists, we differ principally in our views of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election. The Congregationalists of the North, in their general teachings, express our sentiments in other important particulars. With all these Christian brethren, we delight to take sweet counsel and walk in their company. We rejoice in their success. We grieve in their afflictions. We gladly cooperate with them in every good work. But the difference which separates us from other denominations of Christians arises mainly from our views of the ordinance of baptism and the results which naturally flow from that difference, and that difference may be reduced to this. The scriptures speak alone. So, Wayland is simply indicating that, look, we don't say these folks are going to hell, they're unsaved, we don't say that they're pagan, that they are heretics. We don't even say that they're insincere. We simply say we cannot go with them. We cannot, and that where our differences arise is in our insistence on having scripture command. That's where we differ. That's the whole difference. It's not personal, it's not personalities, it's in this. And he pointed out some there with whom we have great differences and wouldn't even recommend, but he did He did make the point that we have some doctrines on which any of those that he named, we can concur with them in those doctrines. But we will differ with them when they start to teach a thing that we have no scripture mandate for it. We must part with them. We must part with them. I was thinking this week, uh, 
and feel free, you gentlemen, feel free to add your thoughts because I, I was meditating about we have certainly historical precedent a great deal and most all of you know more about this than I do. But I know enough to know and say that historically there has been great cooperation in meetings, for example, and uh, evangelistic efforts between Baptists and Presbyterians. And historically, we've worked together, and, and you might say, well, there's historical precedent, we should do that now. But the times were different, the circumstances were different. We have come to a day in which that kind of association brings with it a great deal of baggage that it did not have back then. And those groups, Presbyterian and Baptist, for example, just to use an example, those two, were so solidly in agreement on doctrines of salvation, for example, that you could cooperate. Well, we don't even find ourselves in agreement on the doctrine of salvation with the bulk of those who call themselves Baptists. And certainly not with Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and what have you. So, we're in a different hour. And the things that Wayland's referring to here about historically and, and, and the association and things in which we can share together, today we've reached an hour where even that is no longer possible. In my conviction, it's my conviction that it's no longer possible because of all the doctrinal issues where we differ on the fundamental fundamental evangelical doctrines we disagree and it's not about our baptism it's not about our mode or even the subject of baptism we disagree in the fundamental doctrines of salvation and so we can no longer hold hands with them in joining in gospel labors at least that's my conviction so we'll take up in earnest next time the mode of baptism as a subject for us. Any further comments anyone would like to add to these thoughts? Identify it in the right way because you're simply leaning and 
And you and you brought you brought that point forward based on a doctrine that's very critical to us. As, again, as Baptists, a very critical doctrine that's distinctive for Baptists. And that is the individual priesthood of every believer, of every believer, even every believer in the pew, if we could use that expression, has responsibility. Not to accept the position of the church or the pastor or even a confession primarily, but, but is responsible individually to God to search the scriptures and know whether a thing be so or not. It is the responsibility of every, and that's one of the great failures in the modern church. And I'm putting that in quotes, modern church, even Baptist church. They do not press this doctrine of the individual priesthood every believer. They're content to just take what the preacher says or take what the church says or take what the movement says and not see the weight of their... You, you also use some expression about uh, laziness, just the laziness to search the scriptures. They're not willing to search the scriptures for themselves. But that's, that's a specific, very strong Baptist doctrine is our teaching of the, the individual priesthood of every believer. Our confession addresses it quite well, thoroughly, uh, and we should teach it, the individual priesthood of every believer, not church body or denominational body, but every believer in the body. And we don't, many of our churches fail to press that matter. And saying that it, it ought to be a matter of profound regret among us and generally that there is this increasing profundity of ignorance that prevails in our Mm. We ought to bemoan the fact that practically we are a generation 
of functional illiterates. Right. Right. Who are unable to understand. As, as Philip said to the, uh, the, uh, the man in the chariot, understandest thou what thou readest? At least, he, <laughs> at least he had the wherewithal to understand that the writer was writing about someone and he needed to know who that someone was. Yeah. Now, we have a generation that's grown up that couldn't even figure out that the writer was writing about someone. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and we, we are, I know we've said, well, I know we've said, I've said before, the list of sounds redundant, we are, we are losing our grip quickly and sliding backwards into an age that our remote forefathers lived in of complete illiteracy, mm-hmm. where the church, such as it was in those ages, was able to force all manner of error upon people because they could not read the scriptures for themselves. Right. And, and it, it became so embarrassing to the church at a certain point that they took the, took to themselves the trouble of creating stained glass windows with pictures of Bible scenes as a means of teaching the people. Right, that's right, that's right. Because they couldn't read. Because they couldn't. And once we reach that critical mass, the people either can't or won't read for themselves, we are, we are doomed to repeat mm-hmm. that age. To go back into darkness. Not for and no reason that they called it the dark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But and, and I mentioned in a recent message, I think, or somewhere, I mentioned that the, the, the trickery and treachery of our situation in current times is that technology has masked all of that. And you don't see ignorance anymore in the same light. We don't see it's there, but it doesn't look like it. Because technology makes them look very intelligent when they're really not at all. And that, so technology has become a, an instrument of the devil to, to mask this horrendous ignorance and illiteracy. I mean, there's a reason text language, there is such thing as text language. It isn't because we didn't have adequate words in our language. <laughs> Is that people couldn't read them. And at first you think, well, no, text language is just for the sake of brevity. It just helps us get a message across quicker. Well, that, that, that's certainly true. But when text language becomes your language, rather than it's just useful for abbreviating things, when it becomes a language itself, now you've got a serious problem and you're and you're raising a whole generation who who understands only that language. And it is, to say the least, inadequate, not downright corrupt. I mean, I'm all the time getting messages from somebody, and I have to go to some teenager and ask them, what does this say? I don't know what it says. I don't know what it means. I have to ask somebody to interpret this for me, because I don't speak this language. You know, and it never ceases to amaze me how quickly, boom, on sight, they know. 
Well, that's a language. It's a language. And we are losing the English language. Being displaced with all this cyber stuff. And it's grave tragedy. Grave tragedy. Yeah. Dear old Bunyan, would agree with you there. Yes. Right. Have the Bible. Have the Bible. With a Bible. There you go. That's it. Who was the who was the man? I don't recall. There's a man there was a quote. The the uneducated plowman with a Bible is a greater scholar than an Oxford dong without it. That's right. That's absolutely right. 